High snap, kick up, kick. Good! And the Red Raiders celebration can begin. It's 2008 all over again. A crazy game here in Lubbock. 37-34 the final. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Strength. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Drink. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the show. Episode number five of Chatting Yardage. Boy, oh boy, things are certainly heading in a fun direction in the landscape of college football. I am your host, Mr. Cam Matthews. As always, you can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93 or follow the show to be part of the conversation at Chatting Yardage. Boy, week four, you know, on last week's show, I mentioned that we're kind of in the part of the season where schedules aren't aren't exactly the strongest. You know, you've got some conferences that are beginning conference play, but, you know, weeks three and four are kind of the dead zone, so to speak, of the schedule in terms of who your, your powerhouse are playing. More often than not, they're playing... You know, they're playing a lighter team there, you know, right before conference play. They're not necessarily playing any kind of, you know, team that's a, that's a great threat. But there were still quite a few games last week that came out, you know, being highly entertaining and had some interesting results and, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of fun there to be had. So, you know, just, just taking a quick look uh, across the scoreboard, first looking at last week's pick six games, uh, Clemson comes out on top of Wake Forest 51-45 to in a double overtime thriller. Uh, you know, we knew Wake Forest was really going to give Clemson a good game and, you know, forcing uh, a national championship contender um, you know, so it seems into double overtime. That just goes to show how strong that Wake Forest team is, not to mention putting 45 on the board uh, against Clemson, who's typically known for their defense, is, uh, is nothing to be ashamed of either. Um, quarterback DJU uh, had arguably his best game uh, at Clemson so far by putting the Tigers on his back and really, really carrying uh, them to, to a win. So uh, good game there to start us out on Saturday. Uh, TCU gets by SMU in the Iron Skillet Bowl. Final score 42 to 34. Uh, of course, this was Sonny Dyke's return to SMU, uh, where he just left last season uh, to take the job at TCU. And apparently, at, at one point during the game, the SMU uh, PA operator. Uh, played the song Take the Money and Run by Steve Miller Band as kind of a shot at Sonny Dykes. And, well, that that exactly didn't end up working out because you were losing at the time, and that just seems like sour grapes. But I digress. Um, fun one there, though. 42-34 to 34 is your final score of, with a fourth quarter that saw a combined 27 points scored. Uh, so a, a really you know kind of fun back-and-forth contest, but the Horned Frogs come out on top. Boy, 
they are uh, they're really really coming into form as far as Big 12 teams go. They're certainly going to be one to to look out for uh, moving forward. Just just a fun, fast kind of team. Uh, the the ones that that's enjoyable to watch to be sure. Uh, Duke and Kansas had a really good back and forth game. Jayhawks coming out on top, thirty-five to twenty-seven, handing Duke their first loss of the season, while Kansas remains undefeated. Uh, still not ranked though, surprisingly. Um, statistically, have you know one of the better offenses in the entire country, undefeated. But I guess in terms of strength of schedule, they haven't had the uh, the strongest one so far. Have a good test uh, this coming Saturday. I don't have it on my pick six. Uh, as of now, but they do play Iowa State this Saturday uh, as an underdog. Funny enough, Iowa State, of course, putting together a good season, you know, so far. So that'll be a good test for the Jayhawks in that one, you know, just to kind of see, I guess, are are they legitimate or not? And, and that's the that seems to be the period that we are we are getting into at at this point. You know, through four weeks of college football. We have a fairly good idea of who everybody is, but there's still some yet to really prove themselves, and I think we're going to get a lot of that this coming week in week five. You know, the, once you get through week five, week six, you know, and you're theoretically halfway through the season, you know, the, the book is pretty much written on you. Like, you know, every just about everything there is to know about a team is there and it all comes down to how they're going to perform how they're going to exceed expectations how they might surprise some uh so we'll learn a lot about kansas this saturday when they take on iowa state uh tennessee won a good one remaining undefeated uh, at home against florida handing the gators their second loss of the season already uh could have very well been their third loss uh if not for a couple of snafus with uh south florida uh final score there uh 33 to 28 volunteers controlled most of this game and you know going into the fourth quarter it looked like they had it pretty well in control but you know florida still found ways to make this game interesting consider the fact that you know right as around time time was expiring florida was taking a shot downfield that um had it connected you know uh, had they been able to score there they very well would have won the game but i mean of course uh it was an interception thrown so offensive woes kind of continue for florida they did make it interesting sure um but you know for a team that after defeating utah in week one and they suddenly jump up way in the rankings despite not being ranked the week prior and then they get a bit exposed by Kentucky, and then they struggle against South Florida. It, it, it Florida's schedule is not going to get any easier by any means, and you already have two losses. So, you know, it, they're at, on the high end. You could see an eight and four season. You could very well see a seven and five season uh, this year for the Gators. Tennessee, meanwhile, uh, continues to roll. Uh, they're they're really starting to look good. I think they're exceeding expectations uh, for for where they where they were going to be uh, this season. So uh, they'll be one to watch. They're not, you know, I, I don't think anybody thinks they're an immediate threat uh, to Georgia or you know or by any means. But uh, they're they're certainly going to be, you know. 
in the conversation and not necessarily a team that other SEC teams are going to look forward to playing necessarily uh, like they have in the past few years. Texas Tech, uh, this might have been the most exciting game uh, of the day. It took down rival Texas 37-34 to in overtime. Texas Tech fans, of course, stormed the field, get handed a big old fine uh, by the Big 12, which was apparently taken care of by a local bank branch or, or something along those lines, which I, storming the field, it, I don't know, it, it, it's interesting to me because, you know, it's not like Texas is, you know, was the number one team coming into, you know, or even a top five team in this one. Um, and also Texas didn't have that much of a, um, you know, they, they weren't considered that heavily of a favorite going into this one either, but whatever, you know, have fun. Enjoy, enjoy your, enjoy your win, uh, against a rival. I'm all for that. Texas though, now two and two, uh, on the season, which, you know, there, there's still plenty of time left to really, you know, keep, things going in the right direction. They've got eight games left. They're still waiting for Quinn Ewers to return. I think the Longhorns are going to be fine, but I think we still have to temper expectations on, you know, what kind of season they they could have. You know, one solid performance against Alabama does not a good season make. You know, you've still got to move forward from that and produce wins against other good teams that you're going to play down the road. Uh, and then staying in the state of Texas, Texas A&M um, had a good statement win over Arkansas, 23-21. to This game, of course, was played at a neutral site, quote-unquote, uh, in Jerry World, the, uh, what is it, the, the Southwest Classic or something like that. Anyway, uh, but A&M, you know, they, they fought back. They fell behind 14 uh, there in the first half, and they found a way to fight back before halftime. Um, you know, they were outgained by the Hogs, and there was certainly some missed opportunities from Arkansas, uh, including a, a doinked field goal in Jerry World that actually went off the top of the upright. Uh, you know, the interesting conversation there, um, since they were they were playing in Cowboys Stadium, the in, or AT&T Stadium. Uh, the interesting conversation there, though, is that NFL uprights, of course, are five feet taller than the ones in college, so... Uh, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, it, it's that kind of conversation. Um, Arkansas, you know, of course, has a big game coming up on Saturday as they host Alabama at home. And, you know, I think that the hope and the expectation was that Arkansas would be undefeated going into that game. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out for them in that way. Uh, A&M, meanwhile, gets another good statement win, you know, back-to-back wins after falling to App State in week two. Uh, but, you know, they, they've got they've got a few interesting matchups coming up on their schedule as well. We'll, we'll get into that later. Looking around the rest of the college football landscape, Jeff Collins out at Georgia Tech as well as athletic director Todd Stansberry. And, uh, you know, this is the third week in a row that a major D1 coach has been fired, which is an interesting precedent that's being set. You know, uh, we've seen coaches fired midseason before. You know, we've seen coaches fired on tarmacs uh, before. Uh, but it's interesting how this this is becoming more and more common. You know, schools are no schools and boosters are no longer waiting until the offseason arrives, you know, to make a make a change. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of programs, they're willing to go ahead and just cut ties, cut the negativity, you know, call this season a wash, however you want to, you know, however you want to rule it. 
and, and just, you know, move on from the head coach. Uh, but, of course, you know, this starts the rumor mill of who's next at Georgia Tech. And, and uh, of course, Deion Sanders is the – is the name that comes out so heavily um, just with his Atlanta ties. And, you know, the man is a master recruiter, as we've seen, um, you know, with his current job. I think, I don't know, Georgia Tech is a tough sell because that is just a tough market to sell to a head coach, you know, being not too far. And sure, Atlanta is technically your city, but you are deep in the heart of dog country. I think that is just a that is a tough job to sell, but we'll see plenty of rumor about who's who's going to go to uh, to Georgia Tech. Uh, but like I was saying though, it sets an interesting precedent about about firing coaches in in the middle of a season, and it does make you wonder, you know, who else is on the hot seat at this point? Um, you know, Brian Harson at Auburn, how uh, how safe is his job? Right now, uh, he's certainly the one that's got a lot of eyeballs on him uh, right now, too. So, uh, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Miami falls to Middle Tennessee. And not just a Middle Tennessee team that scrubs by uh, Miami or tries to, you know, or, or you know, took a last-second field goal or anything like that. No, I mean, to Middle Tennessee controlled this game for the majority of its duration. Uh, this was just an absolute beatdown. And, and, you know, my hope is that we can, we can stop the whole this team is back narrative, which I, you know, I don't think we ever will. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in four down territory about the, the savior complex for college football. But, you know, Mario Cristobal uh, still has a lot of room to improve at Miami if they want to get that program back to where it was a couple of decades ago. Yeah, hard to believe it's been that long since Miami was really that prominent. But, you know, losing to Middle Tennessee is certainly a huge setback. Especially if you're a Hurricanes fan, you have to wonder, you know, you have to wonder, are you ever actually going to get over that hump? Uh, Michigan sneaks by a, a very frustrating Maryland team, 34-27, to good back-and-forth game here. But this, of course, is the first real challenge that Jim Harbaugh and Michigan have faced this year you know they've, they've earned a lot of a lot of criticism over their non-conference schedule up until this point and it's it, it's well earned and I say that because yes these games were scheduled years and years out where a couple of the three teams that you played to begin this season were having really good years when you scheduled them fine sure that's great but it should also be noted that when you schedule three cupcakes in a row like you did, that even though they're having quote-unquote good seasons at the time, most often that's not sustainable for smaller programs. Also, how are you going to go through your first three weeks and not schedule a legitimate threat if you are a team like Michigan? Um I don't know. I think I think the criticism was well earned. I've seen a lot of Michigan fans trying to argue that it shouldn't matter, but once you face a real team, you just barely sneak by Maryland, uh, and you have a much tougher schedule uh, down the road within the Big Ten. So uh, have have fun with that, Michigan fans. Um, 
Notre Dame gets back on track over Carolina. Carolina has an, another awful, 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 awful performance on defense, and that's coming from a diehard Tar Heel. Uh, boy, we got to get something figured out there. And, you know, three wins already in the bank. I've said to people outside of the show that, you know, I think I felt like five and seven was really the team's ceiling this year. And at this point, man, it feels like those last two wins are going to be really hard to come by. And, you know, Notre Dame falls into the magical waters of Keenan Stadium where all of your offensive woes uh, can be fixed. And sure enough, they come out on the other side with a victory over Carolina. Uh, so, it, it you know, Notre Dame has much tougher games coming down the road and Carolina schedule doesn't exactly get easier either. So we'll keep an eye on those two teams. Uh, Georgia looked, uh, you know, a little weaker against Kent state, uh, allowing the most points they have all season. Um, but it, you know, I chalk it up to this. Every, every team, every, every great team each year has one of these games where, you know, not necessarily are they in danger of losing, because at no point I think was anybody really concerned that Georgia was going to lose to Kent State. But, you know, you come out and you look at the final score and you say, Ugh, you know, that's a little closer than I thought it would be, or, you know, Kent State scored a little more than I thought they would. Every every great team has those, and, you know, I don't think you should necessarily be worried uh, Kirby Smart doesn't seem worried, so I, you know, Bulldog fans, I don't think you should be either, and I haven't really seen any, any, uh, sound the alarm alerts from Georgia fans yet, uh, but they'll, they'll get ready to really start diving into their conference schedule here coming up. Uh, Kentucky was tied at halftime with Northern Illinois, but eventually pulled away, uh, the, the Wildcats, you know, coming off of, Coming off the win at Florida in week two, have had a couple of bumpy games since then, but, you know, remain undefeated, but have a good test this Saturday. We'll get into that later. Uh, I think it goes to show that, you know, the schedule is continuing to deliver this season. This coming weekend looks really, really good. There's a lot of heavy implications on a lot of games this coming weekend as we start to get into uh, conference schedules and what that means down the road for, you know, potential conference championship games and, th and things of that nature. So, you know, it's a really fun time of year. Looking forward to covering it here on Chatting Yardage. Uh, wanna once again, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, it is a pleasure, as always, to bring this to you each and every single week. Uh, hopefully by now you have found the show in its own podcast feed on, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or you can listen to it directly on our host site, art19.com. Uh, that link, of course, is in our Twitter bio on twitter.com, twitter.com slash chatting yardage. So college football continues to deliver this season. Uh, we got plenty to talk about, so let's get into the meat of the show. This is Four Down Territory. First down. The first major hurricane of college football season is raging uh, towards Florida and the southeastern United States. Hurricane Ian strengthened on Sunday night, and there remains higher than usual uncertainty over its track and intensity, according to the National Hurricane Center. Tropical storm watches and warnings were issued over the weekend for several parts of Florida as Ian nears the southwestern coast of the state and into the panhandle. The National Weather Service's latest model shows midday Thursday, which will be right after this episode drops, as the time in which Florida will receive heavy rain, high winds, and potential flooding in areas. 
College football's Week 5 schedule appears safe on Thursday and Friday, with all six games being played far west or north of the storm. But Saturday's slate is a bit of a different story, with multiple games being affected already, and some already being moved. College football games Saturday that could be or already are affected by the storm include Eastern Washington at Florida, South Carolina State at South Carolina, LSU at Auburn, Wake Forest at Florida State, Virginia Tech at North Carolina, SMU at UCF, the Citadel at Appalachian State, Georgia Southern at Coastal Carolina, UTEP at Charlotte, NC State at Clemson, and Virginia at Duke. Now, of course, this won't be the first time that we've seen a hurricane during college football season. Think back to 2016. There was a torrential torrential downpour in Chapel Hill when Carolina faced Virginia Tech. NC State had a game that day. Uh, Clemson had a game that day. You know, fans sitting in the stands just getting bombarded by heavy rain. But it's also not the first time that really wild weather has affected a college game either. So taking a quick look at some of the wildest weather we've ever seen across the history of college football. November 25th, 1972. Clemson comes out on top of South Carolina by a final score of 7-6. to six. One would think that a place called Death Valley is generally dry and warm, but that was not the case on this horrific day. The nasty setting between hated arch rivals provided a steady temperature of 33 degrees with a driving, pouring rain lasting all day. A ghastly, dirty, and ugly scene. But a tribute to the tenacity of the fans on both sides, as not a soul was seen leaving the stadium until the end of the game. December 6, 2008, West Virginia comes out on top of South Florida 13-7. Superb Mountaineer signal caller Pat White plays his final game in Morgantown in this contest. Fans were advised to wear white clothing to salute the great senior quarterback. They were greeted by a snowstorm that left the entire field white, but it was a good omen as the Mountaineers survived the warm-weather USF Bulls thanks to 141 yards passing and 40 yards rushing from White in his final home contest. And then our last example of wild weather in college football came to us from November 25th, 1950. Michigan defeats Ohio State by a final score of 9-3. The most famous of all foul-weather contests, this game has been referred to as the Snow Bowl, by football historians. Thanksgiving weekend, well over half a century ago, the Wolverines traveled to Columbus only to be met by a foot of snow on the field and drifts much higher elsewhere. The game time temperature was 5 degrees with 40 mile mile an hour winds. Over 50,000 fans braved the incredibly nightmarish conditions. The great Vic Janowitz of the Buckeyes performed yeoman's work by running, kicking, and playing all over the treacherous field. After the, grant, after the game ended, Janowitz displayed his nearly frozen hands to the coaching staff. Rather than immediately seeking medical attention, he was heard to lament, I knew what I wanted to do, but my body wouldn't let me do it on this field. Despite not making a single first down, the Wolverines proved to be the better bad weather team that day by downing the Buckeyes in a game featuring 45 punts. It was an unforgettable clash that still lives in the memories of fans seven decades later. So for anybody that may be listening to this that is in the direct path of Hurricane Ian, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Be safe. Be prepared. 
don't take any risk in this. Treat it seriously. And I hope that everything turns out okay your way. Second down. We've all been there. You sit down for a job interview, whether in person or by phone or over Microsoft Teams or Zoom. And the question inevitably comes, what is your greatest weakness? You might say something like, I am my biggest critic, or I am too detailed-oriented, which, take those answers for, for what you will. But if, you, if you're the Oklahoma Sooners, sitting in an interview room and this question is asked, how do you end up answering? Number six, Oklahoma suffered its first loss of the Brent Venables era, 41-34, at home to his alma mater, Kansas State. With a third loss to the Wildcats in the past four seasons, the Sooners are 0-1 in Big 12 play for just the third time since 2012. The Sooners won their first three games of the season by a combined score of 127-30, to but the Wildcats cleared the 30-point mark midway through the fourth quarter thanks to a monster game from quarterback Adrian Martinez. The Nebraska transfer threw for 234 yards, rushed for 148 more, and scored all five Wildcat touchdowns in a career-best performance against an inconsistent Sooners defense. Martinez's biggest play came late in the fourth quarter while facing third and 16. After Oklahoma got pressure, Martinez stepped up, ran 45 yards deep into into the red zone, and then scored a few plays later to give the Wildcats a two touchdown lead. The Oklahoma defense will get the brunt of the blame by allowing 509 yards and 6.1 yards per play, but the offense had consistency issues on its own. Quarterback Dylan Gabriel threw touchdowns of 56 and 50 yards in the first half, but 11 of his other 24 completions went for 5 yards or fewer. Oklahoma's offense only reached the red zone three times and scored two touchdowns, though one came with only 35 seconds remaining. Oklahoma lost its Big 12 opener for the first time since the COVID-shortened season in 2020 when it had just one non-conference matchup. Naturally, that loss came to Kansas State. The last time Oklahoma lost a Big 12 opener in a normal year was 2012. The loss, Kansas State. Since 2012, Oklahoma has lost only nine home games, but four of those have been to Kansas State. The Wildcats' performance was a wild swing from a 17-10 loss to Tulane one week ago. Suddenly, they sit at 3-1 and tied for first place in the Big 12 at 1-0. So, Oklahoma Sooners, what would you say is your biggest weakness? Third down. Michigan State blew up the market for college football coaches last season by giving Mel Tucker a massive 10-year contract as the Spartans charged out to a 9-1 start in just his second year. But of course, this decision was a bit puzzling at the time. Tucker's overall record as a head coach was 16-13 at that point, covering not even three full seasons at Colorado and Michigan State, but things looked promising in East Lansing. And there was already rumblings that LSU or maybe even some NFL teams were plotting to lure the 50-year-old coach away from the Spartans. Since that 9-1 start, Michigan is Michigan State is 4-3, including Saturday's 34-7 loss to Minnesota, a thorough beatdown coming on the heels of a decisive loss last week to Washington. 
Tucker told reporters, I'm really not happy with what I'm seeing, quote, I don't accept it, end quote. In the long run, Tucker could be worth every penny of the fully guaranteed $95 million deal, but it would be way too premature to make any definitive judgments. But then again, it was premature to make Tucker one of the highest paid coaches in the country. The coach-as-savior mentality is rampant in college football. A good coach can have a huge impact on a program, especially after several years of incompetence. Look no further than Kansas for proof. Lance Leopold has the Jayhawks 4-0 for the first time since 2009. The turnaround behind quarterback Jalen Daniels has been remarkable for a program that hadn't won more than three games in any season since that 0-9 campaign. Still, the rush to find and then lock up a great college football coach has given coaches all the leverage and led decision makers, athletic directors, university presidents, well-heeled boosters, to make highly questionable financial decisions. Tucker's deal is far from the first and maybe not even the most questionable. Nebraska just paid an extra $7.5 million to make Scott Frost go away a few weeks before his buyout was scheduled to be cut in half. It's just crazy business to me. The contract Tucker got reshaped the market and made extra-long mega deals the norm for any established and successful coach. If Tucker was worth it after 16 victories, of course, Ryan Day, Jim Harbaugh, James Franklin, Brian Kelly, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart, etc., all were worth at least that. Miami is a private school and does not disclose how much it pays its coaches, but it has been mostly assumed that the school gave Mario Cristobal a market-rate mega deal to leave Oregon to be the Hurricanes' savior. After this Saturday, that's clearly going to take a while. A week after a lackluster showing at Texas A&M, Middle Tennessee handed the Hurricanes what can reasonably be called one of the worst losses in program history. The cost of a savior has skyrocketed in college football, while the chances of actually landing one has never been more fraught with risk. So, it begs the question, which side of the argument exudes greater impatience? Those looking to claim their coaching savior and snatch them up quickly? Or those ready to show them the door when things don't happen quick enough? Fourth down. What's the worst thing that could happen? If your favorite team lost on Saturday, do you mope around the house, dive into a big bowl of ice cream while the Pac-12 slate kicks off that night? Do you hit the Reddit boards on Sunday morning still angry? How about setting off a nuclear reactor? A University of Utah student was recently arrested after police say she threatened to detonate a nuclear reactor if the Utes football team didn't win their game that coming Saturday. The 21-year-old woman was booked into the Salt Lake City, Salt Lake County Jail for investigation of making a threat of terrorism. On Saturday, the univers- on that Saturday particularly, the University of Utah team hosted San Diego State. The woman, quote, posted threats of violence on the Yik Yak app before the game, stating that, quote, if the football team did not win the game, she was going to detonate the nuclear reactor that is located in the University of Utah causing mass destruction, according to a police booking affidavit. Police noted that the student does have knowledge of the nuclear reactor and is aware where the reactor is located and attends class in the same building where the reactor is housed. 
Last Thursday, the university released a statement regarding the arrest saying that even though the student claimed her comments were a joke, the school has, quote, a zero-tolerance policy for these kinds of threats. University of Utah police also noted that the school's nuclear reactor is secured and alarmed, and police have unique protocols for managing any breach of the facility. This arrest comes just a few weeks after a 19-year-old student was arrested for investigation of the same crime, after he also allegedly used the Yik Yak app to make a bomb threat at the Spencer Fox Eccles business building on a University of Utah campus. When that student was arrested, he said the threats were a joke and he had no intention of carrying them out. So how did Utah do against San Diego State? Well, they beat the Aztecs 35-7 to that particular Saturday. Well, this has been Four Down Territory. Let's take a quick break and hear, as we always do every single week, from our official mascot correspondent of the show, Mr. Alex Butler, with this week's Mascot Minute. Hey, everybody. This is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we're featuring the mascot from perennial powerhouse, the Ohio State University, Brutus the Buckeye. Brutus the Buckeye is, overall, a nut from the Buckeye tree. Over the years, his getup has changed drastically. The original Brutus, in 1965, was a rounded papier-mâché suit, a Buckeye nut with some minor features such as eyes, a mouth, and fluffy white eyebrows. Unfortunately, the original Brutus, while a hit with fans, was a bomb in the design department because of its weight and size. Instead of papier-mâché, the next Brutus was made from fiberglass and made its debut at the Ohio State vs. Iowa game. Soon, more customization was demanded, and in 1968, the adjustable smile was born. So if his team was struggling, Brutus could change his smile to a frown. The next Brutus in 1975 was decidedly unpopular. Instead of a full-body nut, Brutus now was a small head on a person's body, and his squinting eye and sneer just didn't do it for the fans, students, or alumni. The following year, in 1976, the beloved fiberglass body reappeared, now with big fluffy eyebrows. In 1977, a new version made its debut. This Brutus was still a full-body nut, but was still smaller than the cherished fiberglass body. The problem? It was super heavy. 60 pounds heavier than its precursor, which led to its eventual abandonment. A new feature, however, was added and remains today, a ball cap with an O. In the 1980s, the university moved to a smaller head again, but instead of the leering version of 1975, this new head retained the shape of the older, round body and had friendly features. His face was centered on a lighter brown circle while the rest of his head was a darker brown. Paired with regular athletic uniforms, with the hat remaining in place, this version was well-received by fans. The new Brutus underwent a uniform change in 1982, when he donned a scarlet and gray striped shirt with his name on the front and OO on the back. This top, paired with the scarlet pants, remains his outfit of choice today. In 2001, Brutus's head underwent some touching up as fans noted he looked pretty tired. Today, he looks just as refreshed as he did back then, with big, bright eyes, a buttoned nose, and a wide smile. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? Hit us up, at Chatting Yardage on Twitter, and let us know. Once again, this has been Alex Butler with your Mascot Minute.
All right, we're going to jump into this week's Pick 6 Games of the Week. Six games that I find interesting, and I believe you should too. Our first game of the week we're going to highlight is number 15, Washington versus UCLA. This is a Friday night kickoff, 10.30 p.m. on ESPN, so a little late night action for you. Uh, just a good late Friday night matchup between a couple of uh, conference rivals. Washington and UCLA have split their last two meetings. Uh, of course, Washington coming into this game ranked and a three-and-a-half-point favorite over the UCLA Bruins. Uh, UCLA, as has been noted several times in the media uh, so far this season, having a bit of trouble uh, getting some good attendance there on their in their home stadium. But you have to wonder if maybe you know this will be the catalyst to get some kids out, especially on a Friday night type game. Uh, you know th- this could be a good a good chance to really fill that place up. Huskies, of course, have already played upset uh, this season to Michigan State, uh, defeating them at home. While UCLA really has not played anyone uh, of note, uh, but you know. It, a Friday night game between a couple of Pac-12 teams, these always uh, seem to go over really well. They're always very fun to watch. You know, the Pac-12 just feels like a different brand of football that oftentimes I believe we we overlook simply because they play so much later. Uh, you know, quite a few of us are going to bed sometimes on Saturday night when, when their biggest games are kicking off. So, uh, you know, if you have no plans on Friday night, you feel like staying up a little bit later, don't have to get up too early on Saturday morning, then by all means, this is certainly a game for you to check out. All right, now we move into Saturday's slate of games, which is where the rest of our games are as of now. Uh, looking at it, I believe I've got one game on here that could potentially be moved. No word as of yet, though, um, on how that one be affected. We'll get to that one in a minute. Second game of the week I want to highlight is number seven, Kentucky. At number 14, Ole Miss. Ole Miss, a six and a half point favorite in this one. 12 o'clock p.m. start on ESPN. So, kicking off the Saturday slate in high fashion with a huge SEC rivalry game. Uh, Kentucky's toughest challenge yet in terms of their schedule. You know, they had they had that really good win against Florida in week two. But as we're getting further from that win, it certainly seems like it's not as quality of a win as we thought it was at the time. And Kentucky stumbled a little bit since then, you know, having a couple of close wins since. Uh, And they're going to have a tough challenge here. Ole Miss, believe it or not, is actually fourth in the country right now in rushing yards. Uh, So Kentucky's defense is going to have to step up big time. Kentucky, however, will see the return of their star running back, Chris Rodriguez, who has been serving a suspension through the first four games of this season due to a DUI he got earlier in the spring. So he's a he's a big threat on the Kentucky offense at running back. So he'll be a huge bolster to their, to their uh, offensive game coming into this game, and he's certainly coming back at a good time for them. Uh, in doing my research on this game and just kind of preparing myself and, and looking at it, one interesting note about this matchup is that the home team has won four of the last six meetings uh, in this series, and, and and I feel like that's noteworthy. A because you know that that's a pretty good pretty good little record. It's not staying necessarily even, you know, back and forth, but it, it's showing that there is a home field advantage in a game like this. But I also bring that up because Ole Miss, is, like UCLA, as I mentioned earlier, has had some trouble uh, with attendance so far this year. And Lane Kiffin, head coach of Ole Miss, has gone out of his way just this week to mention something about that and, and really calling the UC or the, the Ole Miss fans 
to fill the stands this Saturday. Um, you know, this is a big game for both teams, but you know, in, in, in various ways. So, you know, Kentucky's trying to maintain the fact that they should be in the conversation as a top SEC team. And I, I think they're there, but we're trying to see exactly how good they are. How good is Bob Stoops' program um, here in, in Kentucky? And then for Ole Miss, you know, you, you've got a coach in Lane Kiffin who has done wonders for that program so far. You know, this enigmatic head coach, Lane Kiffin, that, you know, draws the news wherever he seems to go. Uh, but Ole Miss, it still feels like they're trying to get over the hump. They're still searching really for that big win that it doesn't necessarily feel like they've had quite yet. So a uh, big game for both, a uh, good way to kick off the, the Saturday slate. Uh, the only game I've noted at a 12 o'clock start on Saturday, so uh, should be a good one uh, down at Ole Miss Third game of the week I wanted to highlight, number nine, Oklahoma State travels to number 16, Baylor. Oklahoma State, a two-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. 3.30 kickoff on Big Fox this Saturday afternoon. So, finally, you know, I think for a lot of us, we've kind of circled this game on our calendars because we're finally getting a rematch of last year's Big 12 Conference Championship game between Oklahoma State and Baylor. Just a, a, a kind of a tit-for-tat game that came down to the wire where Baylor just managed to hold off uh, OK State mere inches, essentially, from reaching the end zone and, and uh, taking victory in in this one. So it's certainly a it, – it, it's going to be a fun matchup. We're probably going to get plenty of highlights from that game from last season. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be fun to see these two teams square off once again. Uh, Oklahoma State is, of course, attempting to remain undefeated on the season. They have a perfect record so far, now climbing into the top 10, while Baylor looks for its fifth straight Big 12 conference victory. Of course, they have lost already this season earlier, uh, I believe in week two to BYU. Might have been week one. Week one or week two uh, to, to Brigham Young. But, you know, Baylor's looking to keep that streak going. Of course, that, that loss doesn't necessarily matter in the grand scheme of things uh, when it comes to conference record. So, you know, both teams looking to come out on top and, you know, keep things going in the right direction for both of them as, you know, two top 20 teams. A close matchup in terms of spread, you know, so a, a good one. You can almost guarantee that this is going to be your typical, you know, epitome of Big 12 football kind of game, you know, fast-paced, shootout-style, high-scoring game. So, good afternoon watch there. Fourth game of the week here on Pick 6, number 22, Wake Forest, travels to number 23, Florida State. The Seminoles are a seven-point favorite in this one. This is a 3.30 kickoff on ABC. Now, as of as of right now, as I'm recording, it is 7.42 p.m. on Thursday night, and I have not seen any updates uh, to that schedule. Florida State has come out and said that they believe that they can host this game safely in Tallahassee. Uh, Wake Forest seemed, has seemed a little hesitant, and I, I don't necessarily blame them on that, you know, essentially heading into a hurricane zone for a football game. Uh, but as of right now, it, it's still on. That could certainly change. It could get bumped up to Sunday, potentially. Um, I don't know if by this point you can uh, you can necessarily uh, change locations. Uh, it is kind of short notice. Now, a couple of fun facts about this game. It is only the second time in series history that both teams are ranked 
when facing each other. You know, both teams, Florida State, of course, has a historic football program, and then Wake Forest has had good stretches here and there over the years. They're in a really good stretch now, but this is the first time that they're, only the second time that they're facing off as ranked opponents. And while the Seminoles hold a hefty lead in the all-time series, and I mean a hefty lead, the Demon Deacons have actually won the last two meetings. And so you know for a lot of the upperclassmen within Florida State and for for head coach Mike Norvell, you know, they're going to be looking to flip the script on that. Florida State, of course, undefeated so far this year, looking to really keep that momentum going. I don't think there was a whole lot expected of them. They were expected to be better than last year. But, you know, off, off to a really good start so far. And uh, quite frankly, similar to Oklahoma State and Baylor and similar to uh, to Kentucky and Ole Miss, this is a game that both teams desperately need to win to keep their name uh, in the discussion, and especially for Wake Forest and Florida State to keep their name in the discussion for the Atlantic Division. Uh, you know, this is you got to keep in mind that Wake Forest, Florida State, Clemson, NC State, they're all in the same division within the ACC. So Clemson and NC State, of course, are playing later. We'll get to, we'll get to them um, here in just a bit. But the, the Atlantic really feels like it could be up for grabs, and this Saturday could technically determine, uh, it, well, at least better define the direction that that half of the conference is going in. And then, of course, the Coastal and the ACC as ca- is as chaotic as ever. Um, you know, Miami doesn't look like the answer now, although in the offseason, folks were ready to send them to the ACC championship game. Uh, you know, Pitt looks okay, but they've, you know, they've stumbled here and there. You know, you just really don't know. Uh, but this is an important game, not only for that narrative, but for both schools to figure out where they might end up come December. But again, keep your eye out on this one. Schedule could change uh, due to the hurricane, so we'll certainly uh, certainly be on the lookout for that. Fifth game of the week, highlighting uh, number 17, Texas A&M at Mississippi State. Mississippi State actually a three-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. This is a 4 p.m. kickoff on SEC Network. Both teams come into this one with with a bad loss on the season. A&M, of course, losing to App State in Week 2. Mississippi State falling flat to LSU that same week. Uh, So both looking to kind of turn the corner, so to speak. A&M, of course, has won their prior two games coming into this contest, but may have been a bit fortunate to do so. They've been outgained offensively in both contests uh, coming into Mississippi State. And that doesn't necessarily fare well against a Mike Leach offense at Mississippi State based on the air raid. Uh, that, that could be a huge challenge for the Aggies. Uh, the offense has been putting together scoring drives at a national average for Mississippi State while A&M is outside the top 100. So we're talking about a team that is scoring and scoring fairly often with a high-octane pass-driven offense against a team that still having some struggles offensively, uh, but still has, still has a good defense. But it feels like if there's one way to beat this A&M defense, it's through the air. So imagine what a what a loss to A&M at this point, giving them their second loss, would do to that program. And then, of course, Mississippi State is still trying to find 
still trying to find its identity, it feels like, with Mike Leach. You know, he, he's come in, I believe this is his third or fourth season now, and they really have not made the waves that I think they were expecting to make. At least not the ones that they did back in, what was it, 2013 or 14, when at one point they reached number one ranking. You know, that, that feels like forever ago. But, you know, consider the fact that Mississippi State wants to get back to that national prominence. So, uh, should be a good matchup there on SEC Network at 4 p.m. And then, of course, the big one of this week, uh, sixth game here in the Pick 6 segment. Number 10, NC State travels to number 5, Clemson. Clemson Tigers, a six-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. This is a 7.30 kickoff on ABC, and it's also the site of College Game Day on Saturday morning. This is as crucial of a Week 5 contest as as you're going to find, you know, and we feel like we're really starting to get into the meat of some of these schedules. Um, I read earlier today that uh, this weekend showcases five games between ranked opponents. That's the, the most that we've had on any given regular season weekend in college football since 2017. So this is really pairing up to be a good weekend of football watching. And, you know, if you happen to be in an area where you're going to be seeing lots of rain like I am, uh, it'll be a good weekend to kind of stay inside and just enjoy football. Maybe put a pot of chili on the stove. That's what I plan to do. So, uh, but all that being said, going back to now uh, NC State and Clemson, it's not to say that this matchup will necessarily determine the Atlantic Division But there are heavy implications here. Of course, NC State does have to go on to play Wake Forest. uh, So they've got to essentially win out there. Uh, Clemson has already played and defeated Wake Forest. And if Clemson can get past NC State, then that makes their path a a little clearer, barring anything wild happening uh, from now through the end of the season, which... Still plenty of time for that to happen. So, again, there's heavy implications here, but it doesn't necessarily determine the outcome um, here at the end of the season. This is State's first conference game of the year. Clemson already 2-0 on the season, having opened up against Georgia Tech and then uh, playing against Wake Forest last Saturday. State comes in with this one having beat Clemson at home last year and, and Clemson's first of two losses last season. But now now the game is at Clemson in Death Valley against a Tigers team that is really, it feels like it's starting to find itself post-Trevor Lawrence. Um, so it, it, you know, it's not going to be necessarily as easy as last year because that is going to be, that house is going to be rocking despite the weather, you know, it's probably going to be awful weather outside, uh, by that point, unless it clear, unless it's cleared out, but I, I don't believe as of now, the forecast is looking all that great come game time. Uh, so it, it's going to be a tough challenge for the pack. And despite being undefeated, it, it feels like NC state have truly not found their footing as the powerhouse force that they're expected to be this year. Uh, you know, they snuck by ECU and, and sure they had that game against Charleston Southern where they ran up the scoreboard and, uh, they did fine there. They, they got past, uh, Texas Tech, but I don't think any state fan came away from that win. While, you know, it was never in doubt or anything like that, I don't think any state fan came away from that win saying, you know, man, we look tremendous out there because there was a lot of little kinks and bumps in the road in that one. 
And then, you know, last week they beat UConn, but everybody beats UConn because uh, UConn can barely field a team these days. Uh, you may have seen it, but they're gonna, probably going to be having a, they're probably going to have a lineman playing running back uh, this coming Saturday because they're so short on players. So take that for what you will. Uh, but they really haven't seemed like they, they have found their uh, their identity yet. Uh, their, their quarterback, uh, Devin Leary, you know, he, he's looked fine, but he hasn't looked like the, you know, QB one that, that is expected of him. But Again, this is the kind of game that good teams will step up and, and play at a high level for. Uh, so this is the kind of game that is not only going to have ripple effects uh, throughout the remainder of the season for the ACC, but it's also probably going to show who both of these teams are. Um, so I, I believe by the end of Saturday night, we'll have a good idea of just how good State and Clemson uh, both are in that one. So that has been this week's Pick 6 Games of the Week. Uh, As always, you can check out our Twitter page, at Chatting Yardage. There will be a graphic put up by Friday morning or so uh, with corresponding polls for each of these matchups. Would love to hear your thoughts, who you think is going to come out on top. Be sure to vote in the polls. And then I also want to hear what else you're going to be watching this weekend, what other games have your interest. So again, you can follow us on the show. Be part of the conversation at Chatting Yardage. The extra point. This week's extra point goes to Arkansas quarterback KJ Jefferson. KJ Jefferson is partnering with Arkansas 211 and the United Way of Northwest Arkansas to raise money for flood victims in Jackson, Mississippi. Heavy rainfall at the end of August caused the Pearl River to flood, which runs right through the heart of the Mississippi State Capitol. Reports show that the river rose to just over 35 feet, which is 7 feet above the flood stage. The flooding overwhelmed the city's main water treatment plant, and since then, many of the city's residents have been without clean drinking water. It has caused many people to rely solely on bottled water to make food and deal with hygiene. Jefferson and Arkansas 211 have set up a texting line where people can donate money. All proceeds go to United Way in Jackson and will go toward providing people with bottled water, baby wipes, cleaning supplies, and other necessities. Anyone can donate to this, so please consider donating to this cause by texting QB1Arkansas, all one word, QB, the number one, Arkansas, to the number 41444. So a tip of the cap to Arkansas quarterback KJ Jefferson for trying to be as helpful as he can in a dire time for the residents of Jackson, Mississippi. Playing us out this week is the Razorback Marching Band with the Arkansas Fight Song. Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter, at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.
All right, go ahead. Start talking. Hello. Abby, don't put your mic. Don't put your mouth on the mic. Okay. All right, talk. Go ahead. Hello. Talk to the talk to the microphone. Right there. Okay. And how old are you? Can you say it? I am two. You are not two. I am. How many is that? Four. I'm a four. That's right. All right, tell everybody bye-bye. Bye-bye.